Urban Broadcast Collective brings together the best podcasts on cities and urban life. Subscribe to us on SoundCloud and and Apple Podcasts. This Must Be The Place. You're listening to Elizabeth Taylor of RMIT University and I'm joined today by Michael O'Neill who is one of the volunteer organisers of the group Yarra Pools. Their slogan is Toward a Swimmable Yarra. Uh, Yarra Pools are inspired by successful urban river swimming projects globally and here at home. They're a community-led proposal to reintroduce recreational swimming to the lower Yarra and in so doing transform an underused section of the iconic river's northern bank. End quote. So I, over the summer, I went to a lot of public swimming pools and I also went to a lot of freshwater swimming spots. Mm-hmm. I think a highlight for me was the Ovens River in Bright, for yes, example. And as nice. a general rule, I, I think that I've never regretted going swimming, but I've also never swum in the Yarrow River. And I think perhaps if I did, I would regret it. So why don't people swim in the Yarrow River? So people do swim in the river upstream, so around Warrandyte and Launching Place and... Laughing waters, so there's quite a few spots that you can go up in the sort of upper upper catchment where the water's cleaner. Um, and so, but the reason that people don't swim in the CBD reaches of the Yarra is because of pollution and also because it's currently illegal due to um, boating regulations. But I don't think many people know that it's illegal due to boating regulations. I think the main driver for people not swimming is the perception of um, yeah, the health risks associated with swimming in the river. Yeah, for most of us, we don't need... Uh, I didn't know it was illegal either, but... No, so most people don't. No, exactly. So it's not, it's not a regular occurrence yeah. these days um, to see people swimming in that part. Is there a distinct point of the river where it becomes clean enough to swim in at present? So they do monitoring north of Dites Falls, so in the freshwater part of the river, um, and there is a website that uh, the EPA run, and um, it'll forecast water quality around those those areas, but um, swimming's not usually common around that part of the world still. And roughly, I mean, in the olden days, that's my term for mm-hmm. anything before I was born and increasingly including parts of it but people definitely swam in the river in the past how long has it been since it was popular or safe to swim in the lower Yarra um so it's probably about 50 60 years since it's become I suppose you know unacceptable or public you know not part of the public consciousness to do it um there was uh, a swimming race that was briefly revived in the 80s um, but that's sort of um, gone away again so yeah it's probably been 40 to 50 odd years so similarly I mean the Yarra was probably in a pretty bad state even mm-hmm. back then mm-hmm. but it's kind of the, the, the environmental movement coming out in the 1970s and the perception around those things and the education around what was happening um, and drawing the links between the health impacts of pollution and exposure to those that really put the nail in the in the coffin so in a sense environmental awareness made it worse yes yeah yeah people knew it's what you don't know won't or it may occasionally kill you but it's less likely to exactly influence your behavior yeah so we'll we'll find stories we'll talk to people and they'll say it was very common they still used to do it and they had no you know the 50s and 60s and there was no um you know no aware you know i think people knew what the river looked like visually but they were still 
getting in, I suppose, that link hadn't necessarily been mm-hmm. drawn for all people. And since that time, do you think there are aspects of the Yarra River that pollution that have improved and all others that have... Oh, absolutely. So I think since the 70s and the, and the arrival of um, the EPA, you know, the, the world's second EPA in Victoria, um, is... You know, there's been a continuous improvement program um, for the last 30 years to clean up the river um, and try to get it back, not necessarily to a swimmable state, but to, um, you know, I suppose at least nice to look at, nice mm-hmm. to be close to, not stinky, um, and hopefully get some birds and the bees back around and, you know, uh, a bit of aquatic life happening again in the river. So that's been a long program of work by a long a lot of people and, mm-hmm. and we acknowledge that previous work and we're sort of saying we're probably halfway in towards swimmability. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is kind of the driver to take us to the next the next stop. So we've stopped um, you know putting raw sewerage into the river in most circumstances. Um, <laughs> we've stopped you know extraction in the CBD reaches. We've got the establishment of the Victorian environmental water holder so there's an environmental allocation um, for the Yarra now so we've seen you know stormwater upgrades and all sorts of things so litter reduction programs and all sorts of um, things happen that are that are moving us towards so the so the state of the river is improving what are the biggest remaining challenges though so the biggest remaining challenge well i suppose at the moment it's stormwater pollution Mm -hmm. so what they call diffuse source pollution coming from just the hard stand urban environments. So is that partic- anything particular? I mean, I think dog poo, but is there No, things? so... Um, plastic bags. Yeah, just plastic. Everything. Well, there's the litter, there's the the amenity piece, but then there's suspended solids, there's hydrocarbons from cars, there's, oh, yeah. um, and then you sort of get uh, a coli and, and those sort of things washing into the, to the river after big events. So, um, and it also affects the bay mm. as well. Um, we have beach closures and those sorts of things occurring after that. So stormwater is the big, the final piece of the puzzle. But that's in the broader context of sticking, you know, another four million people in the Yarra catchment through population mm-hmm. growth, climate change, which will affect water availability and the amount of water in the landscape. So there's um, certainly a big focus on not going backwards in the context of of all the pressure that's coming. Um, and, and then, and, but we're saying. Yeah, so other examples around the world. So I used to work for a big engineering firm who were working on Plus Pool in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, at a similar stage of development as the Yarra Pool. Uh, mm-hmm. Similar model, concept, conceptual led, you know, wanting to see environmental improvement around the, the pool idea. So that was part of the inspiration. And then uh, Thames Baths. But even just going to things like, you know, Brighton Baths or going to the Eastern Beach Baths at Geelong mm-hmm. um, are really important. I grew up in inland New South Wales, so we would swim in actually the, the power station um, cooling. cooling pond, <laughs> Lake Liddell. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a, lot of, a lot of examples around of, you know, it's not new what we're trying to do, I suppose. We're trying to bring something, something back. And what would be the benefits to Melbourne as you see them? Yeah, so I think there's two, um, 
Broadly, it's a livability benefit, I suppose, but talking about pools more generally as a social space, as a useful space um, for people to come and, and meet at. So we really see the creation of uh, down at Enterprise Park there, a, a meeting place really for the local community, so the South Bank residents and all the people who are sort of moving in to Melbourne. So we know that there's demand for more open space uh, throughout Melbourne particularly in that part of the, the city, there's, a, there's some difficulties around that. But we also know it's not just parks and pop-up parks and those sorts of things. People want different types of open space and they, they want something different or unique or new. Um, so there's that, that benefit. Depending on how far we can push the idea, whether it becomes something you know, really iconic, mm-hmm. um, something that's visually striking, that really speaks to what Melbourne um, is and can be as a design city and a um, you know a, you know a place with excellence at urban design and really enforcing those those kinds of things. the other benefits as well. So that's the pool, but around general swimmability of the Yarra River is really that the tying together. So I spent a lot of time working in water sense of urban design and green infrastructure, and you kind of talk about cleaner and greener. Um, environments but there's never and there'll be some targets around that there'll be scientific or, or you know um, kind of best practice environmental management outcomes but it's really hard for the community to engage in what they mean and there's no sort of end point like when do we know we've sort of hit hit success and how do we really justify the investment so the swimmability piece So we've met with Wurundjeri and Boon Wurrung um, on the project, both groups, several times. They're heavily involved uh, in discussions with us. There's a, you know, they've, they've made it clear that their expectations are around being uh, consulted with, and we continue to to do that and work with them. We've also spoken to Dean Stewart, uh, who runs the Walking Pirarum tours down from Enterprise Park. So from a park user perspective, um, someone who knows the history of the place has been working out there for the last decade. Uh, and we've got some wonderful ideas out of out of him and others around six season landscapes, indigenous plantings, mm-hmm. uh, and they've all been picked up. Those ideas and elements in in the design principles. Enterprise Park is obviously where Melbourne, well, not obviously not a lot of people know, but where Melbourne sort of came into being as a as an entity. So that's as far as the the What's boats the background there? could get up. Ah, oh, okay. Um, yeah, which is why the turning basin is there. So the the falls were there, and that was where the fresh water and um, and brackish water sort of were separated, uh, and obviously an important meeting place in the crossing uh, crossing point across the Burrum uh, for the members of the Coolwood Nation. 
and obviously also the point of first contact really where everything um, everything changed for Victorian Aboriginals. So the the site uh, has you know many layers of history that we really want to tease out. Mm-hmm. But it was a swimming spot, um, and it wasn't. So it's it's kind of teasing all that out and bringing all that yeah. back in the context of a bigger urban environment, um, you know, high profile site that's really you know not not fulfilling its potential. Yeah, it's a really interesting example of thinking about how you could reimagine something or a spot in part by reconnecting with its past and how it was used in the past. Yes. And that would perhaps be otherwise quite difficult. So yeah. This used to be different if you sort of imagine you could swim here and people used to swim here before it was as we know it. Exactly. Um, totally yeah. agree. And try, yeah, try to imagine what that would have been like or what that must have, mm-hmm. must have looked like. Um, so uh, as we move forward through the design um, principles and, and into the sort of architecture studio, studio that was run here at at RMIT, those elements, you know, through vegetation palettes, um, through the use of natural filtration methods, the reinstatement of the falls, all sorts of things, um, as I said, the six season landscape. So people, the architects kind of teasing all those things together and seeing what they look like. We've also got the Scar Tree project down there, our installation and those sorts of things that should be preserved as part of this um, Part of this project, and you know, heaven forbid, people might actually get down to the site and see them, see those sorts of things. Could you remind listeners where Enterprise Park is? So Enterprise Park is opposite, I suppose, opposite Crown Casino, so on the <laughs> north bank of the river, um, and it, the aquarium sort of takes up maybe a third of the site, and then you have the Enterprise Park, and then the turning basin in front of that, which is the recreation of where the ships used to come up and and turn around um, to head back down. Okay, because I wasn't entirely sure until yeah, I Yeah, so most it's people... It's underutilised. It is very underutilised. There's obviously, um, you know, there was, it got some media last year and the year before with, the, um, you know, the massive homeless, homelessness issues that are facing the city at the moment. And people were uh, gathering around there and in, in vast, vast numbers. So it got some, got some press around around that issue mm-hmm. um, and it's quite you know our research into the site you know we've looked at things like uh, the free to be work that was done last year around young women's safety in Melbourne so women dropping pins where they felt unsafe mm-hmm. and, uh, and there was quite a f- you know there was no good feedback around that, <laughs> that part of the world there wasn't a lot of feedback which is also indicated that a lot of people are getting down there mm-hmm. anyway but anyone who did um, you know talked about how unsafe they felt. So there's a safety and a perception issue that needs to be, uh, we feel needs to be dealt with, uh, really through passive surveillance, really through getting people down there and activating that part of the right in the middle of the city. the world uh, and during working that workshop up I ran into 
guy named Matt Stewart, who was part of Yarra Swim Co. So that's the group that wants to bring the, the um, three-mile swim to Princess Bridge back into to being. Mm -hmm. I got him to come and talk and present to, to the engineers and scientists and designers at that um, workshop about his, his work. And then that's kind of um, just grown ever since that, that relationship, because we were both sort of on the same same page. So at the same time I was working on the Dockland Surf Park proposal, which was kind of next, or different, different, different style of project. And then we have been working with the Yarra Riverkeeper together and sort of building a community around, not just the project itself, but people wanting to activate uh, the inner city parts of the Yarra through community-led led projects. So work with Co-Create Cremorne, the Burnley Undercrofters, all sorts of uh, little community groups trying to do different, different bits and pieces down the river in challenging spots usually under freeways or railway lines or things like that. You've got a published timeline of running sort of 2016 to 2023. How has that been going? Have yeah. you had sort of surprising successes or any setbacks? That kind of thing? I think basically because we're a non-for-profit volunteer group so we have no access to money, capital or funding at the moment. So we kind of know, we know where we're going. Um, we've got some good pro bono partners on side in Wawawa and, and Arab, um, who've done you know, done some good work for us, you know, and we've met with uh, you know probably 50, 60 people. So from wow. ministers down to you know, we've been trying to figure out which level do you build build at. So mm -hmm. you have a pretty picture and you start a discussion and you get some media and that's that's great. But how do you keep that momentum going? Mm -hmm. um, and that's really been the work of our partners who've sort of been identifying different things that we can do. So whether it's running events at M Pavilion like we did this year, or we've got, you know, we've got a design workshop in a couple of weeks as part of Melbourne Design Week. So really yeah. just identifying those opportunities to add you know, to keep us on task and, mm -hmm. and keep us moving keep us moving forward. How do you see this kind of project as being similar or different to the history of just municipal pools and chlorinated swimming pools? So I mean the history so pools were um, in Australia was sort of, people swam in rivers, so there were baths and there were swimming spots all up the Yarra, there were swimming clubs, that's where people swam. You had Horsham, uh, Wimmera River, you'll see the old pool there, you know, there's all sorts of um, places, you go to Adelaide and there's the swimming clubs in Brisbane and, and everywhere um, had it, so kind of, you know, cage baths or pools, and obviously Sydney's full of these, these things. What happened was, you know, it was kind of the pollution issues that started to manifest, but also um, the sort of public health elements around swimming and bathing um, came into being. And then there was also a nation building element around um, small communities, particularly having building local pools, so in the 40s and 50s. So it was kind of a nation building, um, not a social engineering exercise, but it was kind of, you know, um, let's let's formalise these places. Let's put these you know rectangular boxes in. And if you go into country towns, most often the pools will be right next to the river where people used to swim. So they haven't moved that that yeah. far away. It was just the formalisation, and we can construct things like these now mm -hmm. and chlorinate them and those sorts of things. So with that solid regulation, perhaps a bit of over-regulation. going to ask about that. <laughs> um, in terms of those sorts of things, so we have a big journey to go on. Um, you know, with regulators as well, um, Department of Health and EPA and those sorts of things around, you know, how we're sourcing the water, how we're treating it, 
Um, yeah, we don't want to be adding chlorine and doing any of those sorts of things, so we kind of currently fall outside of the regulatory frameworks. So Victoria does have some guidelines or regulations around spring-fed aquifer-fed pools and refresh rates and those sorts of things so that you don't have to add chlorine. Yeah. Um, but it's how we're regulated. Yep. And then yeah, if we're a formal pool, then there's a whole lot of other codes and standards that come into to play yep. as well around how signage and how those things are overdone. Yes. Yeah, I don't want to sound too... Um snipey about it, but it is something I see a really um, destructive cycle affecting public swimming pools as well and would it would be a barrier to projects like this is the the mentality of risk and yeah. thinking thinking of everything as risk and extending that mentality to the point where well you basically don't have a pool. Yes. Because it's too dangerous. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean our argument is the air is not fenced now mm -hmm. so people can jump in or fall in or do those sorts of things. There are design, you know, ways to design around that. Um, do we want to put fences and things up around? Ideally not. Mm -hmm. um, so how do you, you know, you work through all those issues so people can step in and out. You can look at the example in Brisbane that's mm -hmm. not fenced, it's free, uh, which is kind of where we'd want to be heading. Um, but, you know, you know, we've talked to Lifesaving Victoria a lot about about their views and the safety aspects and volunteer lifeguard services and all sorts of things that could happen and be done down there and how it becomes a place where people learn about swimming and how to swim, um, particularly newcomers to Australia, that sort of cultural access point for people to, you know, to, to do something that, you know, Australians, I think, you know, we think it's it part of our culture, we're kind of proud of our swimming history and legacy, it's an, there's an expectation that people, that Australians should be able to swim um, for education systems, or they used to be, so um, it's a useful, it's a useful access point I think for people outside, from outside Australia to sort of come in and see how we negotiate social spaces and operate as people, but in the context of it's become way too overregulated. The size of aquatic centres and those sorts of things, they're huge cost items now mm. for councils to build. Um, we've had good discussions with Shane Gould, the former Olympian swimmer, and you'd expect her to be very much around, uh, to be talking around you know, formal training and places to do that, and she's uh, quite the opposite. Mm. So she wants smaller pools, she sees uh, you know, the importance of outdoor pools, not having roofs on them and all sorts of things. And she talks about the example in Launceston where she now lives, where they spent a heap of money building a, an aquatic centre uh, up to what they thought were Olympic standards. And then the standards changed as soon as it opened, so they can't hold mm. you know, formal events there. And she said, you know, we should have built seven small pools, not one big yep. one. The other issues around the cost of operating them as well. So people you know, that we talk to very much see them as a liability for councils, you can look at reports, because they're very easy to say, we charge this much to come in, cost this much to run, so we're cross-subsidising the people coming in. Um, we don't do that with parks mm -hmm. and other types of open space, and that's very much where we see this project being. So yes, there are costs associated with these types of things. Yes, there are ways to recover costs through users, and you know, there's different models. Uh, we really need you know, we're moving towards a business case, but we need funding to, to look through all those different different models and how do you monetize some things that can be put straight back into the, the pool and keeping costs as low as possible.
something that comes up in this, which is possibly one of the leverage points that you think about, is you mentioned, you know, Brisbane has their, what do they call that river thing? It's their South Bank pool, yeah. Darwin has a similar thing. Sydney has quite a prevalence of them. That kind of sense of, will we ever be as good as those cities and getting a sense of uh, pride or boosterism in, in yeah. towns is often <laughs> the best. No, exactly. In Melbourne, you know, the climate's a particular challenge. But really, so what we picture that is sort of saying, look, these are happening in this one now that's just opened in Helsinki. Mm. So, you know, so they're the opening in European <laughs> cities, places that are freezing at the moment, you know, negative 10 degrees kind of thing at mm-hmm. the moment. And you follow them on Instagram and you see the pool full and the steam coming off the, off the, um, you know, off the water and looking pretty spectacular. So there's kind of, um, yeah, there's obviously a lot of scepticism around, yeah, what does this thing mm-hmm. do in winter? It does, you know, Melbourne doesn't sort of think of itself as overtly as a as a water city in the way that Brisbane might think of itself as a river city or Sydney as a harbour city. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, Port Phillip Bay is beautiful and our rivers and creeks are actually really, they're actually more important, I think, in in, uh, in Melbourne because it's such a flat city. Mm-hmm. So they actually provide the diversity in the landscape. We've got an amazing trail network system, which really, you know, we, we leverage off along the Mary Creek and yep. the New Ponds Creek. So, you know, there's all that, that all need work to mm-hmm. improve. Um, but, you know, the basis is there and we yep. do move along these these mm-hmm. things, even though we may not think of, yeah ourselves to be. And the, the network of trails and the creek preservation, a lot of that owes a lot to particular points in I think 60s and 70s and Hema and decisions to to open up, to think of these creeks differently and maybe similar shifts and, well you'll have to get state government on board. Yeah. You're just out there kind of uh, seeding the idea I guess and yeah. seeing other people get behind it. Yeah, so we want, I mean obviously the community is getting behind it, so we had like 250 people turn up at M Pavilion the other day and there's, there's good um, you know, there's good, good following, and people are interested in the project itself, in the site, for Enterprise Park. So, what do, what do they do with it? Because it's had many attempts at activation, and it's just, I don't know, it's just like in the too hard basket, I think. Um, and building it up from the community first. We're not wedded to building the pool ourselves, delivering mm-hmm. it, um, running it, or operating it. What we want people doing this is part of sort of talking to peak bodies was getting people to start identifying where they'd be interested in being potentially involved and trying to get them to think differently about things like volunteer life-saving services or you know putting a clubhouse down there or doing those sorts of different things really from a community-led perspective uh, who operates it and runs it you know you know city of melbourne run aquatic centers ymca run aquatic centers uh we're a volunteer group. People weren't necessarily skilled in that, mm-hmm. you know, part of the operation of a aquatic facility or a pool. But or does it need any? Does it need it that? Have, we're not it sure. It has been a big process of professionalising aquatic centres. So partly emphasising the volunteer side is is going back to some of the yeah. the origins. Of and that's really important for the business case as well because if we can remove cost items like life saving because we've got uh, city nippers and a life saving club operating down there. Uh, volunteer life-saving services, then that that changes the cost model. So there's, it's the, all the in-kind things that, that can happen, that can come with it. And, and similarly, if we've got, you know, clubs using it, well, there's, you know, there's an opportunity to um, collect some revenue from the bigger sports to sort of, you know, pump back into keeping the thing operating or mm-hmm. if you require 
it heated, then you need to pay for it to be heated for that you know, couple of hours of down there training or whatever it, whatever it might be. So, um, yeah, lots to, lots to explore. And, this, and in the short term, how can people find out more about this project or get involved? You mentioned something coming up. Yep, so yarrapools.com is the best place to go. That's our website. Uh, we're currently doing testing our design principles across our five themes. So there's a survey running that people can do around that, which takes about five minutes, and that would be fantastic for people to do. We've got, um, we had a studio run at RMIT over the summer, studio, architecture studio. So we've got nine new pool designs that have sort of built on the initial image, which was just a discussion starter. Um, and we, as part of Melbourne Design Week, we're running a workshop in three weeks' time. But that's a closed workshop, but that'll be at Life Saving Victoria um, with sort of, you know, state government departments, um, potential user groups, Water Poly Victoria, Life Saving Victoria, uh, Melbourne Water, people involved in Yarra strategic planning, those sorts of things, to look at the, the new designs um, and pick uh, and through the lens of the strategic priorities of each of their organisations, so we want them to come have a look at them. And then through that we'll pick, hopefully, sort of a minimum, a medium and a maximum option um, to take forward through to costing and, um, you know, and the basis is a proper business case. So, and that's, that's what we really need the funding for, to get that done to uh, government standards so it can be the basis of, you know, discussions with regulators but also around crown land leasing and all those sorts of other things that need to happen because we're on water in water uh off water or on land so yeah so we're kind of we see ourselves as positive disruptors because we're saying even if we don't get up someone else will come along and want to do this will happen yeah um somewhere at some stage so so in the meantime could you given there's no pool in the yarra um where would you recommend people go swimming in melbourne what remains of summer? Oh well, definitely. I mean, just get down to the to the beaches on the on the bay. Um, on a safe day. On a safe day. It's on your first <laughs> is your first uh, point of call. So, you know, the water quality at Port Melbourne Beach is is usually pretty good. Um, but then you know you get down to Black Rock or Sandringham and Halfmoon Bay, which are really beautiful city beaches. Mm. Uh, out in the west, you've obviously got Williamstown and. Not the Maribyrnong River, don't ask about that. No. I wouldn't recommend the Maribyrnong <laughs> at the moment. Maybe the next project, the Maribyrnong Pool. Certainly there's a movement across, you know, as we've seen Yarra protections increase and now there's there's calls for those protections to be given to the Maribyrnong and, uh, and the Werribee Rivers. And obviously just head up into the Yarra Valley and you'll find uh, spots to swim in the Yarra. What do you mention? Pound, there's Pound Bend and... Uh, Pound Bend, Laughing, Laughing Waters. Waters. I was up in Warburton on the weekend yeah, and someone there. had put in a little rock pool. Um, like, that's right, I've heard about that. Yeah, it's sort of so, promoted as part of the rail trail. You get to the end and then you can go in this little... Yeah. Uh, ...improvised pool yep. in, in Warburton. So there's all... Yeah, you just got to explore, I suppose. And there's places on the Moorabool River and... And yeah, and if you can get yourself to Geelong to the Eastern Beach uh, bathing area there, that is... Yeah, it's a great example. It's one of the few examples we have of one of those um, pre-Olympic pre pools that's been really, and it's been really well restored. Yes, and, and restored through crowdfunding, you know, in the, sort of in the 80s and 90s. So uh, Plus Pool New York have buy a tile. You can buy a tile and get your name engraved on it, sort of as a crowdfunding type thing. But you go down to Geelong and you're like, oh, every plank around the Art Deco pool has a, has a plaque on it of someone who bought a plank, you know, 
long time before crowdfunding, and, you know, as we sort of talk about it, or any of that sort of stuff existed. So it's all down there um, at Geelong. Obviously, the water quality is better in the bay, so you can, you can swim in that. But it's uh, got diving boards and things to roll off, and you mm. know, there's, um, it's quite quite a free. The place, the top level of the diving board, but there, you can <laughs> still have a you can still have a bit of fun. Diving there, boards are an extinct species, I think. Yeah. In the old days, so which is which is great. Yeah, it's a good example of what could happen and what could happen potentially in the era. So thank you, Michael O'Neill, and you've been listening to.